Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Could lake monsters originate from deep within the earth? How could unknown giant creatures remain undetected in 2022? What is the Orang Pendek? Hello and welcome to the 955th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you from WON AM and FM radio here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben and that zoo full of questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures and dad, Paul. And today we welcome back well, we we don't, but we but we we would have um, the Indiana Jones of cryptozoology. All right, I will explain that statement by Ben. Uh, our guest today, uh, Richard Freeman, is the sort of Indiana Jones of the paranormal, and um, he was a headliner in our behind the paran our book t- from 2017, behind the paranormal to Bigfoot, Mothman, and monsters you never heard of. We have been unable to reach Richard for the last week. We hope he's okay. However, he travels all the time on his uh, quests for uh, strange creatures. And given the state of air travel today, and we understand, we're told that it's the same all over the world now, Mm. uh, everything is a mess. Flights are canceled right and left, and he may very well be uh, marooned in some exotic location somewhere. Uh, however, and, and we will give you an update if we can reach him today. If not, uh, we are prepared to uh, wing it with his work and talk about his work. And we do invite your calls today, uh, 401-766-1240 from anywhere. Or you can write Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com or Ben at BehindTheParanormal.com. So, uh, as I say, Richard is one of the, he's a, a British researcher. Uh, from Devon in England, and he is um, one of the headliners in, the, in our book. And it says, Richard Freeman is an adventurer and trained zoologist specializing in cryptids, which he travels all over the world to investigate. Uh, he's also an author, zoological journalist, and media personality. Zoological director of the UK-based Center for Fordian Zoology, or the CFZ, Richard co-edits both Journal, Animals, and Men, and the annual CFZ Yearbook. Richard has authored or co-authored a number of books and has contributed to Fortean and Zoological magazines. Anybody doesn't know what Fortean is, that's for Charles Fort, Mm. early 20th century uh, researcher of the weird, uh, who spent a lot of his time in the British Museum, looking for weird stuff that happened around the world in the news, and he found lots of it, wrote a bunch of books. So he is uh, immortalized with the term 40, and there's even a magazine, The 40 in Times, mm. uh, which is uh, really, really uh, at the forefront of, I suppose, paranormal journalism. Uh, so anyway, uh, Richard also lectures widely. Uh, Richard appeared on the CBS radio edition of Behind the Paranormal on, Ju- on January 22nd, 2012, and he's made several appearances with us here at WON since then. Uh, Richard first developed his passion for cryptozoology in the 1970s by watching Doctor Who. Who can that be? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, his interest in the unexplained zoology grew in tandem. He became a zookeeper at, at uh, Twycross Zoo in Leicestershire, England, working with more than 400 exotic species. 
I don't know if there were that many. Mm. Uh, from ants to elephants, but with a special interest in crocodilians. Uh, his website is cfz.org.uk. Yeah, it was really interested in crocodiles and Doctor Who. So crocodiles and Doctor Who. Oh, I mean, those two things go hand hand and paw. So yeah, exactly. So we have. Um, I've recently been rereading uh, his. He has a two-volume set of books here, Adventures in Cryptozoology, and uh, the second volume is In Search of Real Monsters, which was supposed to be the title of our show today because he's working on a new book along the same lines. And next month he is headed to uh, Sumatra uh, to research and try and find the Orang Pendek. Ah. All right. Now we have. Um, that in the book here, and we will um, go through that a little bit uh, as we uh, attempt to contact him again at some point. And we, uh, he, he talked about uh, for the sake of our book, and, and as a matter of fact, uh, the, the behind the paranormal series of books uh, is based on uh, interviews we've done on the show over the last uh, fourteen or fifteen years, and uh, we interviewed Richard on a number of occasions, and uh, our next book will be about UFOs. Mm. That's coming next year, uh, Behind the Paranormal 3, Uneasy Skies. But in the meantime, we'll concentrate on this one. So uh, in our book, uh, Richard talks about uh, the nasty Almasty. All right. Now, a globe-trotting cryptozoologist Richard Freeman is convinced that he and a colleague came very close to an encounter with the Almasty, which is a Russian version of Sasquatch, in the Caucasus Mountains in 2008. And Richard told us, quote, it was 2.30 in the morning and we were at an old farmhouse. <clears throat> the house uh, had an L-shaped veranda. Suddenly we heard a deep guttural vocalization. Something was moving on two legs uh, on that veranda. We ran toward it with our cameras, but it had disappeared into the night. Now, would you run toward a 600-pound uh, hominid in the middle of the night? Well, to be fair, we, we do know people who have done that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 I don't know if I run toward it. I mean, I was... <laughs> Leisurely walk, perhaps? Yeah, yeah amble uh, casually. Uh, in my encounter in September 2016 in Pennsylvania, I did, attempted to get out of the truck, but it was scared away by your mother calling me on the cell phone in the middle of the night. Mm. And uh, I said, you know, was no time for chatty conversation. Yeah. So I, I never had the uh, close encounter, but there it was. I saw it in my own eyes. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, so here's this thing on this veranda, according to uh, Richard here. And, uh, I said, we ran toward it with our cameras, but it had disappeared into the night. With a height of five to six feet, very human-looking and slightly ape-like, the Almasty is similar to the Yeti or the Bigfoot or the Sasquatch we know about. But it has shorter arms according to Richard. Hmm. Uh, Richard said he has less hair, black or brown, as does the Yeti on the face and body uh, that the other hominids uh, have. It feeds on berries. Uh, I don't know if I'd trust that. You know, humongous primates just eating just berries. Sometimes it attacks sheep. Oh, there you go. But it can only, but it eats only their livers. What's that about? Uh, well, there are a lot of, of uh, proteins and such in the livers. Well, how's an Almasty going to know that? Uh, well, you know what? That's a good question. Um, it probably doesn't, but if you want to make the argument from a, a, bio or a zoological standpoint, perhaps over time it just started choosing that because it ended up being healthier. I, I don't know. I'm not a zoologist. 
You know, it's like it's like um, you know why do certain animals do certain things at certain times? You know, it's like we don't really know; they just kind of do it. You know, maybe it's instinct. Well, we we've seen that uh, with known animals uh, because we I know this is a terrible idea, but uh, we you know we at the old homestead we feed uh, the cat any neighborhood cat that comes along right out the window uh, in the basement, right? Like a drive-through. Yeah, pretty much, and, and then they they come and they look in the window. It's like kitty TV, <laughs> you know. They, they watch us. You, you see them, like, you you know, you grew up there. I do, yeah. Looking in the window. Anyway, um, but at night, all their little friends come along, and some are not so little. Uh, raccoons, possums, uh, Shoshana the skunk, uh, Woonsocket Willie the uh, groundhog. Uh, they all come along, and. Um, I put a trail cam out there one time, and it was absolutely amazing. And Shoshana the skunk is rolling the kitty can down the sidewalk like it was a circus act or something. <laughs> so what one can imagine the Almasty, uh, not a, I haven't got one of those on our on our webcam on our um, trail cam. However, uh, they are are nocturnal, and as Richard says here, being a nocturnal creature, it's very difficult to catch a glimpse of this elusive hominid. In some cases, people have attempted to uh, to shoot the creature. These individuals reportedly died afterwards under mysterious circumstances. Mm. Now that makes you wonder. Anyway, and then then we get into the matter of uh, what are the nature of these cryptids. And one of the questions we opened the show was with was, you know, how could these things remain undetected in 2022? Well, you know, we think we're such hot shots. There, there are large areas of the Earth that have um, really not, have still not been explored. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, why haven't the, these, especially the big ones, been well, been uh, positively seen or identified? Well, it's, uh, it's. I mean, that's that's. It's not not just a, a theory to say. Well, you know, most of the Earth, most of the Earth, the Earth is uninhabited. It's 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 a fact. Um, in in my time in college, I, I made the grand decision of taking a sociology course, and in that, I remember our uh, our professor was saying to the effect that you know um, overpopul overpopulation is is effectively a myth because um, most I think I'm trying to remember the exact statistic. I'd have to look it up because I don't want to just make it up. There's there's a good portion of the Earth that's just like not even not habitable for humans. Humans tend to congregate around rivers. You know, and that's that's, and, and you could argue that highways are kind of the modern day rivers in some senses. Hmm. So you'll you'll see that there's more sort of built up around where highways intersect. You know, great a, a, a good example in our own listening area here here in Woonsocket. You know, Eddie Dowling Highway, right? Hmm. So you see, it's built up right where it it connects with 146, and you know, you you tend to see you know where there's where there's you know Route Seven, great example, right off of uh, 295. There's a whole bunch built up off of there, so you'll see where these intersections of roads are. There's more stuff built up, whether it's living conditions, stuff like that. And you'll probably see it more nowadays with these big multi-unit you know apartment complexes going up. Well, what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> so the reason this this is important is because you know we don't really move anywhere else. We we tend to stay in in certain areas. So there's a good portion of of stuff that's just either not explored, not well mapped, and Maine is a great example. You know, you don't have to say, well, you know, the Antarctic, you know, Maine, right? 75% of Maine is national forest. So it's mm. like everybody just kind of lives on the coast, 
And there's maybe a few towns inland, but a majority of it's just national forest that's, like, pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, you know, you, you, you hear, like, all these stories of just, you know, all sorts of weird stuff happening in the woods there, right? Like the Allagash guys. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah, the know, alien abduction experience, we've had them on the air. Yeah, so just stuff like that, you know, it's, it's, it's this idea, and it's nothing new in human history, that on the outside of civilization, because civilization only exists in small portions, there are, are monsters, there are things that are unknown, and they exist on the fringes of society. And this is the fringes of society, right? You know, the Ural Mountains are <laughs> not exactly right. well populated. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's it's not just a mythological thing. This is like a practical thing. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of lot of little little things at play here throughout human history. But uh, you're right about Maine. I, I love Maine. That, 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 that's where men live. Mm. Men live in Maine. Yes. You can't uh, get there from here. Uh, well, from, you men can from try. Maine. So uh, this leads into uh, Richard's comments in our book about not only what is Bigfoot, but where do these things come from and go to? Because we've talked many times about our experiences in Pennsylvania, and, and it's, it's, it's a rural area, but it's not a wilderness area in the triangle out there. And uh, w- when we have our neighborhood meetings, there's some opinion by the local people that maybe uh, there are some caves and uh, the Sasquatch would live in these caves and they sort of come out uh, to find food, you know, at odd times of the day. But I don't think that's good enough. There are too many people around there. So anyway, uh, finally we come to the question, and, the, and there are almost as many answers as there are experiences. Uh, is Bigfoot a shapeshifter, multiversal creature? flesh and blood mammal, alien, being, dumb animal, a brilliant physicist, a survival of the uh, supposedly extinct but proven to have existed Gigantopithecus, civilized or not, friend or foe, all of the above or none of the above. Uh, It sometimes seems that the more research we do, the further we get from an answer. And uh, in the words of uh, Richard, Richard Freeman, quote, Soviet scientists speculated that the Chuchuna, Chuchuna, or the Siberian snowman, represents the last surviving remnant of the Siberian Paleoasiatic Aborigines who retreated to the upper reaches of the Yana River and uh, in, in the Gurkha rivers. Aboriginal people believe they came from different worlds or from uh, or, or are shapeshifters. I believe the vast majority are flesh and blood animals. Now, Richard tends to be very feet on the ground, painstaking researcher, but he's not too hot on the idea of multiversal creatures, you know, them coming and going from parallel realities, uh, as we speculate, and, and as many experts we've had on the show, such as Linda Godfrey, speculate that they do. So Richard continues, uh, we have the false notion that the world has been mapped and explored, as Ben said, it has not been. That's true for South America, Africa, Asia, even part of North America. There are parts of the world where you can travel for a thousand miles and not see another human. Unquote. And then I asked them on the show, again, this is a CBS uh, edition from 2012. Some people believe that Bigfoot and his cousins are intelligent, even benevolent. What say you, Richard? Richard said, certainly intelligent. You do hear stories of them uh, saving drowning people, etc. Animals do sometimes help each other. Uh, unquote. And then the words of researcher Albert Rosales, who was another headliner in our book, uh, Bigfoot is, quote, Bigfoot is definitely an intelligent being that has powers far beyond 
uh, what we're used to and that uh, are perhaps interdimensional. I don't think we'll catch one. So that was the section in the book uh, that highlighted Richard. Now, one of the things I was going to ask him today was based on a lot of the stories in his um, volume one, um, Adventures in Cryptozoology, Hunting for Yetis, Mongolian Death Worms, and other not-so-mythical monsters. And he hesitates to use the term. Anybody watching the video feed, here's the, the book, the, the first, and here's the second one in that series. Very nicely okay. designed. I thought so. Very, very pleasing to look at. Yes. <clears throat> that, that, so you can judge a book by its cover. You can. Yeah. So, in any case, uh, he deals a lot with lake monsters, a special interest of Ben since he was a, a young uh, lad. I do, do really like lake monsters. Yeah. And uh, he always wanted me, when he was little, he always wanted me to take him to Loch Ness so he could, uh, you know, as if the Nessie Bubba and shake fins with him. That's true. And I also, for whatever reason, as, as uh, children just do not understand distance, so I thought it was like, you know, from here to like Fall River was to, was to like get there. <laughs> a little bit farther than that. But uh, the whole Lake Buster thing is is a complex issue. There seem to be lots and lots of them. And I was going to ask Richard why there are so many different descriptions of these things. There, uh, there are a, um, a number of kinds of lake monsters identified by one of the pioneers of cryptozoology, and that would be uh, <coughs> Bernard, I've heard this pronounced several ways, Huvelmans, Wavelmans, and uh, uh, Huvelman, I've heard that pronounced as well. Uh, he, cl- he classified nine different types of sea monster. That's interesting because we, we classify nine different types of paranormal parasites. Uh, but the number one is the long-necked, a long-necked beast with a small head, a large body, and four flippers. Uh, this is commonly uh, compared with the uh, plesiosaur of dinosaur lore. And uh, <clears throat> you often hear uh, monster, lake monsters and sea monsters, or whatever these creatures are, uh, described in that way, uh, including the Loch Ness creature, creatures. Uh, number two is the horse, an animal with very large eyes, a horse-like face, whiskers, and long hair. The horse is also a vertical uh, undulator. This too, uh, he thought of, this is, Wabelman's thought of as a pinniped of some kind. And uh, the undulator, uh, very often, regardless of the descriptions of the heads of these things, people will see them undulating through the water with humps like a snake. Now, Roy Mackle, uh, Dr. Roy Mackle, who investigated the Loch Ness creature some time ago and, t- and took the first sonar readings of Loch Ness, mm, yes. uh, suggested that there were a number of creatures there and that th- when, when their backs were above water and, and they're feeding each other, people would think it's, it's the, humps, the humps of one creature. I think it was uh, killer whales, correct? Was that the Not Loch Ness. Was, no, uh, or maybe, maybe, what am I thinking of? I'm thinking of something else. You're not supposed to call them that anymore, brother. Oh, right. Yeah, they've, they've, they are now differently named. Yeah, they're nice whales. Nice whales. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Orcas. Orcas. Yes. yes. Yes, yes, yes. All right, so uh, number three is the many-humped, an animal with a fairly short neck, a long body, and either a row of humps on the back or a flexible spine that loops up and coils around in the water. Uh, this is the classic sea serpent type, uh, snake-like, and that sort of thing. So... There have been um, suggestions that it could be a survival of the 
the basilosaurus were some sort of form of whale from prehistoric times. Uh, <clears throat> number four, the many finned, a weird beast with a scalloped tail, plated skin, and spines protruding, protruding from its sides, undulates too. Uh, number five, the super otter, a huge creature of northern latitudes that wears a cape. No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> northern latitudes that bore a passing resemblance to an outsized otter. Uh, number six, the super eel, you know, humongous eels. Number seven, the marine saurian, the reptilian monster or dinosaur-like uh, crocodile creature that people report. Number eight, uh, what New Haven's calls the father of all turtles, <laughs> a turtle that dwarfs all known species of its kind. And they can finally, get big. Yeah, they do. I've seen them on the Blackstone River, if it was a turtle. Mm. Number nine, the yellow belly, a huge tadpole-shaped animal. So whether all these things are uh, uh, cryptids or not, uh, Richard would would discuss these as um, probably, uh, at least most of them, as probably unknown animals, uh, stressing that uh, not only is the land unexplored in the earth, but so is the ocean. Mm. Uh, I remember, good grief, when was this? The very early 1970s, <clears throat> a friend of mine from an oceanographic uh, team was in the Marianas Trench off the coast of the west coast of South America. Uh, no, the, Mar- uh, no, the Peru-Chile Trench, rather. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Marianas are the other side of the Pacific. And uh, they had a research vessel, and, and they just, to see what would happen among the other experiments, they lowered a... Uh, very, very, uh, I believe it was titanium or chrome steel hook, and they baited it way the heck down into the trench, like a couple of miles. Not really expecting too much. You know, they thought maybe they'd catch, you know, one of those weird luminous things that lose at those depths. Mm. But in the middle of the night, the whole ship shook, and <clears throat> somebody went out and started the winch, which fortunately had a lot of uh, high test cable. Mm. Uh, there was a kind of a fight. The ship was shaking. And they were going to cut the cable when it went slack, and they uh, reeled it in. The cable was straight. The, the um, hook was straightened out, Ooh. completely straightened. So, whatever had done it, he said, must have weighed like twenty to thirty tons. He thought, and obviously the bait was gone. So there's, there was something down there of tremendous size and tremendous strength. So we just don't know. We know, we know more about Mars. We, we, we've mapped Mars. We know more about uh, other planets and the moon than we do about our own oceans. Well, there's also the, the infamous bloop as well. Yes. That's, uh, that's, that's another one that still baffles everybody that Noah uh, in uh, 19, 1997 recorded. Uh, not Noah from the Ark. Uh, the no, National no, Oceanographic no, no and Atmospheric, atmospheric Administration. administration. Yeah, and it, and I, I I always that one always fa- always fascinated me because um, you know they there there were all these theories that oh well maybe it was like volcanic and then eventually I think I think um, I think somewhere around like 2012 2011 it was discovered no it had to be organic something something big made that made that sound yeah yeah but the you know the ocean's so deep that it's like it's like uh, catfish catfish are a great example when they're in the right environment they can just grow continuously. And there's, that's right. And they can, carp. they, yeah, carp, carp can base. They can just keep growing and growing and growing and growing. Some of the biggest catfish in the world, I think, they exist in um, India, and um, 
they 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 just they just hang out there and they just live at the bottom and they just feed off of of scraps and stuff and they you know they, they can just pretty much grow indefinitely and so you know in, given the right conditions anything can really grow to monstrous sizes pardon the pun well yeah well I remember when I was uh, in the seminary up in Augsburg New York uh, right on the St Lawrence River I had a little boat and I'd go out just to to enjoy the uh, northern lights you could see in the winter. Uh, and there was one at one point I was out there and this huge huge thing swam out of the boat it was a muscalonge oh yeah which is uh, related to the sturgeon I believe mm. and and that they have the, the the musky derby every year and people some of those things can be over 20 feet long uh, fortunately they aren't really aggressive at least not that I ever saw at least mm. not toward me, me and my little boat but uh hey. So Richard would say that many of these lake monsters that are, are, are even in the ocean, uh, the Great New England Sea Serpent, for one. So we did a show with Jeremy Robinson oh, on that, yes. yeah, um, which was actually seen on the shore at one point, mm. uh, rather snake-like or eel-like. Uh, although I don't know about eels uh, getting on the shore and sunning themselves, but uh, Richard would say that many of these things are just very, very large versions of known creatures, or perhaps unknown. Uh, varieties of known creatures, that True. sort of thing. So I think that that's a very sensible explanation for some. But like what I saw in that field in Pennsylvania was not a big chimp, <laughs> right? You know, or anything like that. So, however, so I think uh, there was room for all explanations. But as far oh, I didn't realize. Oh, I'm yakking. So uh, let's take our mid-show break, and we'll be back with more about the lake monster. It is Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM, New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back, so stick with us. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade. The finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON AM and FM radio, originating from the great city of Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and we are... Having uh, sort of an interview with our guest without the guest today, uh, Richard Friedman, uh, the uh, Indiana Jones of the uh, cryptozoology world, strange creatures, uh, has, we have not been able to reach him for over a week, so we hope he's okay. Uh, he could be stuck in the in the maelstrom of airport life, mm. which we are told pretty much all over the world is all messed up. And uh, he always travels to exotic places. Oh yeah, a friend of mine was just coming back from Scotland, and uh, he was, ironically he was coming back from Scotland, <laughs> and he he was saying that um, halfway <laughs> he was just they were just flying over Ireland, and uh, the hydraulics gave out, and so they had to make oh. an emergency landing, and then he spent an extra day in Ireland waiting for like another like a flight, so he had a layover <laughs> in Ireland and like didn't have any of his stuff. He was there for like oh. a full twenty four hours. It makes you, like, not want to travel. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So anyway, uh, getting back to lake monsters, I was going to ask Richard today about some of the the, uh, varying characteristics of these things. There have been many, particularly in North America, 
I'm thinking of Ogopoco, uh, mm. Ogopoco up, up uh, Lake Okanagan uh, up in BC, yes. British Columbia. Uh, the natives said that they ate people. They would attack, and uh, you know, if you didn't keep to your feet, you'd be dinner. And there are a number of them that, that do that. And yet, on the other hand, you've got Loch Ness, uh, and even our own uh, here in New England, Champ, up in Lake Champlain, that are just uh, not known for being aggressive, uh, being rather passive and eating, you know, what the yogi berry, nuts and berries, uh, or fish or something like that. It's a vegetarian. So I was going to ask Richard about that. Not only the varying appearances of these creatures, but what, why they seem to be um, benign in some cases and, and not in others. Well, it's almost reminiscent of the stories of dragons. Very, very true. Well, I don't have too many nice dragons. No, 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 no. But, but you know, it's like, um, it's interesting because, you know, you have stories of dragons throughout various different cultures, and they, they kind of died off in Western Europe, but um, they stuck around in Eastern Europe, Asia, Af- Africa, sort of, um, with their own different versions of it, South America, and North America, really, un- until um, the colonials came and kind of ruined everything. Even then, you know, the stories of, um, I'm trying to remember if it was Ogopogo, where the colonists interacted with it and they had to fight it or something. I might be thinking of a different lake monster. Yeah, I think you are. I'm thinking, I forget which lake monster I'm thinking of, but they had like actual, like, you know, they were shooting at it. Yeah. <laughs> Just stuff like that, you know, like like good good colonials. Don't understand yeah. what it is, shoot it. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, that occurred with the uh, uh, New England uh, sea serpent, the great New England sea oh, serpent. Yep, that's what I'm thinking of. As uh, Jeremy Robinson. There we go. I'm getting my, my and, sea uh, monsters mixed up. Yes. Well, there's so many. And uh, up at Gloucester Harbor that they had seen some, a bunch of people were in a boat, and there it was, sunning itself on the shore. So somebody had the gun, and they naturally started to shoot at it. Um, and it was um, just well known to have been seen uh, up until the 1920s. So I don't know, they either searched for greener pastures or uh, died or whatever. And I probably got sick of being shot at, I guess. Well, the other question that arises biologically is, you know, where do these things come from? And you have to have a breeding population in order for them to continue. You know, Loch Ness uh, supposedly has had a monster since was the 13th century in St. Columba mm. reporting it. And people still see things like it today. And the, the lake is very, very long, very, very deep, and supposedly has an outlet to the sea. Mm. Well, supposedly it does. So that, that, would, that would explain... Uh, the longevity and, and the fact that you've got all these creatures who seem to be seen at all periods in history in the same place. On the other hand, uh, I'm thinking, and this is another thing I was going to ask, uh, Richard, <coughs> uh, the Coyne family, C-O-Y-N-E, there are coins around here uh, of Irish descent, at uh, Loch Nahuin near Connemara, Ireland in 1968, <coughs> They uh, they came down to the uh, shore of a relatively small lock or lake, <coughs> excuse me, and they saw a creature with a long neck, but apparently it had no eyes, hmm. and it was large, you know, Loch Ness style, <coughs> and it was uh, swimming around on the surface of the water, and <coughs> again the place wasn't that big, and they lived there, so then they'd never seen this before. <coughs> Sorry. So the question arises, <clears throat> is this creature perhaps from some underground 
cave system or river system and then somehow came to the surface. Mm. And because it's known that many, many creatures in caves like that don't have any eyes. Oh, yeah, they don't need they them. They don't need them. There's no light. So could that be uh, the origin of some one or more or some of these lake monsters? Well, I think the, the, the sort of the... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think, think of the right word. The, the sort of the thorn that kind of goes unnoticed is the biological reasons. You know, they can get you pretty far. They're like, okay, well, Loch Ness monster. Yeah, you could say it's different things, or perhaps it exists in like a cave system, and there's a breeding population in the ocean. Bop, 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 bop. Okay, cool. Show me the evidence. And it's like, great, cool. These are all really great explanations. You know, Bigfoot could just be like, you know, an unknown form of, you know, like. North Gigantopithecus, right? Yeah, or Orang Pendek, or something like that. You know what? You know, okay, cool, great. Then why does it do all these other things? You know, why does it only come up in certain circumstances? You know, why don't we see these more often? You know, you'd think in this day and age, with um, the sheer amount of technology that we're drowning in, you know, we'd be seeing more reports of it. And it's it's you know the, then the explanation is well you know we we don't have the time the effort blah 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 and it's like well I, sure right these are all these are all things that can kind of get you so far not to set up a straw man that's not not my goal here my my goal is I think um, we've we've sort of within the last few hundred years have been thrust into a Hegelian nightmare where um, you know yeah, our our boy Hegel who uh, was a German philosopher in the school of German idealism. Basic, which you could probably is an easier way to understand it is ideaism that um, really all these all these things they can just be explained with logic and reason, and so you then take these things that are, are mystical experiences essentially um, and and sort of bring them into our own two dimensional reality and and flatten them out and say well you know this isn't you know any sort of experience you're having this is just you know uh, an orca that you're seeing. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But the thing is, these these experiences elicit a response from people. You know, typically in the form of of some sort of you know fear or peace or whatever, depending on 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 who you are and what you bring to the experience. Right? It's like you know you could have a similar reaction to seeing just a deer in the wilderness. Right? You know, it, all these things are, have have visceral sort of reactions to that we have to these experiences. And you know, these scientific materialism can only get you so far. It can it can answer you know a couple of questions, and then the rest is kind of like, well, we don't know that yet because you know we can't you know we're we're kind of like shooting ourselves in the foot by <laughs> by saying by not being able to repeat any of this because the scientific method relies on repeatability, and there is no repeatability. You know, all we really have is just a set of assumptions based on you know. Some science that's that's even being changed every day, and and it's 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 getting to the point where it's like okay, well, you know, all these explanations can get you to a certain point, but at the end of the day, all these experiences and all these things, it's like you it's like you take a picture of something, a grainy photograph of a beautiful tree, and you have this grainy photograph, and you look at it years later, and you're like, well, I don't know what this is anymore, so I'm just going to make up a new word for it. And we're just going to say it's this, 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 and this when you kind of lose the point of what it was in the first place. You know, what's more real, the grainy photograph or the tree itself? You see where I'm going with this? I think so, yeah. So essentially, the whole the whole thing is all of these experiences are not new in human history. None of it is. 
these are all things that, as you said yourself, in the 13th century, people were experiencing these same events. And sure, it could have been an orca, it could have been an eel, but the thing is, it was it was an experience that these people had. And the the fact that it continues to this day, and this, the setting may have changed, but the experience is still the same. You know, we'll yeah. never know the essence of the experience, but what we do know is people are still experiencing it. And no matter how we try to put new terms on it, it still doesn't define the experience. Well, true. Yeah, we interpret it culturally. But I'm glad you brought up brought up the Orang Pendek. Mm. That was one of our opening questions. <clears throat> now, uh, next month's trip to search for the Orang Pendek will not be um, Richard uh, Freeman's first uh, jaunt to Sumatra. And uh, he talked about this on, on one of the shows previously. Uh, the Orang Pendek is a small Bigfoot-like creature, kind of an oxymoron there, uh, that supposedly lives in the mountains and forests of the large Indonesian island of Sumatra. Many local people claim to have seen it, and Richard Freeman believes he has heard it. Uh, quote, It has also been seen by Dutch colonists, Western researchers, and travelers. I've seen tracks of the Orang Pendek and heard it calling, Richard told us. Uh, I've spoken with many people who've seen it, my good friend Dave Archer and a native guide both saw the Orang Pendek in 2009 from about 100 feet. That's actually pretty close. Mm. It was frightened. Well, all right. Uh, unquote. In the Bahasa Indonesian language, Orang Pendek literally means short man or dwarf. As a matter of fact, that when it was um, it and there was another creature that, whose uh, fossils were discovered, it was considered it was called, known as the Hobbit. All right. Now, now the fossil remains were of a very small race of people, apparently in uh, an area of Southeast Asia, and uh, could be ancestors of the of the Orang Pendic. I don't know. It hasn't been decided yet. Uh, and Richard continues, they are solitary creatures, um, and he said he also has hair samples. Uh, quote: As a zoologist, I can say that its tracks are different from apes. As for the hair, this has been analyzed by different labs. Dr. Lars Thomas at the University of Copenhagen has concluded that it's related to the orangutan, but distinct from it, Richard stated. I have no doubt the orang pendek exists. Hopefully next month he can find it. So <clears throat> as far as um, some of the other subjects we were going to talk about him, uh, Richard, with was the Mongolian death worm. Ah, a classic. Okay. It is a classic, and he thought, of course, and he's actually been to the Gobi Desert, running around talking to the natives, and they actually were terrified of it, and they would describe it as sending out a huge electrical charge that could kill people, and... um, I think we actually asked him about it last time he was on the show. We we did, yes, and he uh, he was saying that um, people really believe in it. Uh, now, here we are uh, in in our book uh, talking about that, <clears throat> and uh, we're quoting Richard uh, Freeman again, and we asked him, what, what's the weirdest cryptid you've ever hunted? And it was this, this Mongolian death worm. Quote, by the time these stories from the Gobi Desert nomads reached the West, they've grown into a creature worthy of doing battle with Doctor Who. It's two to five feet long, doesn't sound that huge, red, and can spit a corrosive acid. They can generate blasts of electricity that can kill a full-grown camel or human, unquote. Now, Richard said that he traveled over a 1,000 miles through the Gobi Desert and 
half million square mile wilderness areas shared by China and Mongolia. And he interviewed nomads who claimed to have seen the death worm. And uh, we have an illustration of it in our book. I don't know if it's accurate or not. <clears throat> well, it's 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 uh, it's as accurate as it can be. <laughs> yeah. Put it that way. Well, Richard said it's a different animal altogether. The electricity, or throwing lightning as they call it, is complete folklore. I'm sure. Well, I hope so. Uh, most people describe a creature usually around two feet long, as thick as a human arm. It's seen in the, in the desert or slithering in and out of holes. People are absolutely terrified of it. They believe it's highly venomous and can spit. That sounds like some cobras. Um, Richard uh, talked about a particularly uh, interesting man who had seen the death worm as, as a child. And Richard says, uh, quote, His whole family took their livestock and their yurt and moved out of the area. They were frightened to death, unquote. Richard suggests that the death worm might be a reptile of some kind, not a true worm. Quote, the Gobi is a very strange desert. It's not like the Sahara. Some of it is sand. Much of it is rock. Some of it looks like the surface of Mars or Mordor. Other, I don't know if he, he, even he's been to Mordor. Uh, other parts are like a huge mirror, shiny and flat, and there are all sorts of mirages, he says. <clears throat> the death worm certainly could be an undiscovered species of sand boa, a burrowing worm lizard. <clears throat> Again, the guy's a zoologist. But I think the, sp- the spitted poison is apocryphal. Several similar stories are told about a species of sandbow in Somalia. Touch it and fall dead, they say. It's actually harmless. So anyway, Richard compares the folk beliefs about the death worm to the fear of salamanders and basilisks in medieval Europe. Much as you said, these things were experienced by uh, just about everybody uh, over the uh, over the centuries in one form or another, and, and there you have it. Well, it's always really interesting to see how sort of older cultures kind of deal with with these with these things. And it's it's always kind of funny. Um, I, I always liked watching documentaries because I watched one on a ring a ring pendant years ago, hmm. and um, it was it was fun because the researchers show up. They have their their um, their getups on. They're ready to go on safari, and they show up to these like you know these tiny tiny little villages. And people are like, "Yeah, I wouldn't go after it," <laughs> and they're like, "Oh." Silly little natives, they don't understand science, <laughs> and they they run off into the wilderness, you know, to go to go look for the thing. And it's it's interesting because it's almost like, well, they they just they they just don't they don't know what they're talking about. This could be just you know a different kind of monkey. And it's like, well, I think they know what monkeys look like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure they're they're not as dumb as we we think they are. Absolutely and, not. They wouldn't have survived. Right. If primitive people were dumb, they wouldn't survive. No, and and that's that's a you know we we have this 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 fun thing here in the modern world where we think we know everything, and and we we really don't and no, we don't know much of anything. No, everything so, you know is wrong. Exactly. Motto of the show. We have a motto, ladies and gentlemen. We, uh, <laughs> but it's but it, it's you know it, it's I, I do I do appreciate his um I do appreciate Richard's approach to everything because he does talk to the natives. And oh, he go yeah. and he goes. He gets the backstory, you know, and and he he sort of. I always liked how he dealt with the folklore of it, where he didn't dismiss it. He 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 kind of took it into consideration. I I really appreciated that about his research, because it's. I honestly I think folklore at the end of the day is kind of all we really have left, you know, of these things and and of these things that people experienced. And yeah, sure, it can kind of get you know out of hand. <laughs> well, people think that mythology is fake. It's it's just stories that are made up. 
mythology is is well as we always say mythology and folklore are are the vessel vessels of the memory of the human species or their stories that we participate in yes there's many different meanings to it and but it's like yeah. you hear you hear myth and you think oh well it's just not true yeah that, that, that that's not true right you know so uh there are ways and that people then, I mean, we do now what people did then. We may have the veneer of science on it, but we interpret things according to our own still very narrow paradigm. Right, but yet, you know, you, you'll see, like, yeah, sure, we understand all these things, blah, 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 but then when it happens to you, you freak out, and you're like, it has to be this, and, right, 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 and all, yeah. all science goes out the window. <laughs> well, yeah, well, in a way, yeah, but, well, as, as, uh, our friend Mark Antonio says that we're dealing with perhaps probably undiscovered science. Oh no! What I'm saying is it's it's um, you know science is supposed to be facts, right? Yeah, when it happens to you, it's a little different, right? So it's so it's um, you know we we've sort of lost this whole thing. The the Greeks had a bunch of different words for knowledge. One of them being epistemi, meaning scientific knowledge, you know, techni being technical knowledge. The difference between the two, you know, technical being like, you know, I can construct a pen, whereas uh, ecumeni, I understand how the pen comes together, I understand the ink and, and where it comes from. But there is also doxa, which is the knowledge of public opinion, which is how one interprets this knowledge. And that's the thing that we all forget is that science, yeah, sure, we have facts, but it needs to be interpreted. And interpretation is opinion right, <laughs> and yeah. based on experience. So at the end of the day, you know, sure, we have the science, but it has to be interpreted. Well, that's a question that we've talked with Richard about in previous shows. Uh, what constitutes evidence? Right. You know, and, and according to who's paradigm and 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 what what uh ethos uh, you know and what kind of knowledge what kind of epistemology right exactly so, so that's so, that's the thing yeah. is is when it comes down to it you know we still try to string things together as stories because we as humans order reality in four different ways language music art and ritual and so we use language to try and order it and make sense of it and so we tell stories in, in order to understand it and so, you know, even then, analogy is is a great way of understanding things that we just don't get because like is to like and this is to this. So Bigfoot, instead of it being some unknown mystical creature, well, it acts like an ape, therefore it might be. And yeah. and so it looks you know, like a duck and talks like a duck. Right, but we still tell stories about it and, and these these data points that we use we use to construct a narrative to make sense of the phenomena. Well, one of the wrinkles in this argument, too, and, and, and uh, one of the things that Richard uh, <coughs> specializes in is there, there are creatures thought who were well-known but uh, were thought to be extinct but might not be. Mm, and, yes. again, we can get back into the whole argument about we don't really know our own planet and the places where they could survive. Uh, you have uh, the coelacanth, mm, yes. that fish from... The, uh, from Precambrian, for heaven's sake, thought to be extinct for, for you know hundreds of millions of years, and there it was in the Indian Ocean, and they still find them now and then. Hmm. Uh, matter of fact, one of our distant relatives identified it uh, by the name of Courtney, yeah. uh, Australian um, zoologist. So uh, I'm going to be writing about that in the next family newsletter. Oh, very cool. So, um, 
all the all the way down to uh, really strange things like the supposedly existing Mokalium bembe in Africa, which is essentially uh-huh. a a sauropod dinosaur. Natives will, will talk about it like it's you know that they some have seen it. Uh, Richard has been there, and we talked about that. Um, but again, areas of Africa that are completely not completely inaccessible, but but, but hard to get to, mm. uh, if uh, not geographically, but because of warring uh, countries across boundaries and this sort of thing. Yeah, you have to be very careful of that. So there's a lot of places you can't go. Yeah. So um, Richard has done a lot of work in uh, researching the Tasmanian wolf, this sort of thing, things that were believed to be extinct, but all of a sudden they turn up. Mm. So this is another realm of cryptozoology where. Uh, science can come together with cryptozoologists and perhaps agree that a species was not extinct after all. And that's always good news. For, for uh, <laughs> Considering you're hearing more and more about extinctions. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of them, I, I don't know, the, the balance of nature is, is off somehow uh, in many areas. For example, uh, the buffalo mm. in America was considered on the verge of extinction when I was down there in the 1960s in mm. the Southwest, and uh, you know there were you know I don't know a few hundred in existence. Now now they, they they've uh, spread to the point where there are you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions, and they have to kill some of them off. I actually had a buffalo burger. Time. Oh, nice. You know, not that I favored you know killing animals, but I mean just uh, they came back. Mm. Uh, the um, California condor is supposedly extinct. Is that the Andean or the California condor? Uh, I think they believe that they are supposedly are. Uh, some have been seen. This mm. sort of thing, uh, <clears throat> which of course uh, we don't have really much time to get into. Another thing I wanted to get into with Richard uh, were the uh, the Thunderbird stories. Very large birds that are seen. Pretty much all over the world. Mm. Now we got into that with Linda Godfrey, uh, the great American uh, cryptozoological researcher who has a similar journalism background to my own, and who broke the story of the Beast of Bray Road. Yes, uh, in Wisconsin, and uh, she had researched a number of uh, Thunderbird stories. One was in the Pacific Northwest, and the, and she said the man she interviewed was um, describing a hu- a huge bird. He was riding a bicycle. He was on vacation, mm. and uh, he stopped just to take a breath. He looked to the right, and there was an enormous bird, like 10 feet tall, staring at him from the middle of the field. All of a sudden, this enormous wingspan, and it started to flap and flew away. He could feel the wind, and as it flew away, it kind of flew down the road above it, and he said the wingspan uh, spanned the entire road which was about you know, 30 to 40 feet wide. Jeez. So um, Linda said she interviewed it, didn't see it herself. But one thing that she does that we do is to look at the history of the area. Mm. Uh, sure enough, there was a bird island in the nearby river, and, and uh, the First Nations and the people in the area had uh, believed in a um, large bird of that kind that had nested on that island. And uh, you know they would have hatchlings, things of this kind. So here's a, here's another connection between the modern era and uh, ancient legend, because as uh, as we always say, you know, 
ancient legend isn't just legend. I mean, it's based on something that people experience some when, somehow, you know, whatever. And uh, these are often um, in cave paintings or petroglyphs, this sort of thing. So uh, it's the same mysteries confronting the human race all along. And it's people like Richard Freeman who essentially have um, pursued that from uh, a feet-on-the-ground position. And we really respect him, and we hope he can join us very soon on some show. And as I say, we hope he's okay. Yes, indeed. Um, I'd love to talk to him after he goes back to Sumatra and looks for the Orient Pendek. Yeah, no, that should be that should be really interesting. And I, I think... I think it's important to remember these stories um, because it's it's important. It's important to know where you came from because you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you came from. Well, I I, know, I often say that we're the ones living in the in the in the false world. Yeah, that's, we live in um, artificial environments separated from the earth. We don't know what the heck is going on. Uh, we have um, created artificial survival techniques, this sort of thing, whereas. Um, the people who live that we consider primitive are actually the ones who have their fingers on the pulse of reality, I mm. think, you know, more. And uh, we're, regardless of the stories that they pass down to us about these creatures, uh, the, the uh, experience is the same and very, uh, and, and very, very legitimate, I think. Yeah. So, so there we have it. Yeah. Well, we, we have uh, moved to our announcement period here. Ben, if you would take it away. Sure thing. And uh, we start off with the Exeter UFO Festival. It's uh, returning in September at the historic Exeter New Hampshire Town Hall over Labor Day weekend. That's September 3rd and 4th. This is a great event. The whole town gets involved. It's sponsored by the Exeter Area Kiwanis Club to benefit local children's charities. Along with ourselves, speakers will include Kathleen Martin, Peter Robbins, Jennifer Stein, Bob Terrio, Mike Stevens, Lynn Nickerson, Valerie Lafasso, and Mac Maloney, among others. And the subject of our talk is time storms, uh, with thanks to the great British researcher Jenny Randalls, who coined the term. Uh, we plan to do our traditional live broadcast from the event on Sunday with a panel of the speakers. This is a very fun event, so join us if you can. Uh, you can visit ExeterUFOFestival.org for more details. Uh, visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find over 1,100 hours of our regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on WON AM and FM, including... Uh, many that have been restored in the archives at BehindTheParanormal.com. Just click the archives link. Also, you hear many of these broadcasts on the major podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Okay. Um, and you can also check out our show website. That has a charity page on it as well with links to several good causes uh, we have adopted over the years, including... Hope for Hilldale Cemetery in Haverhill, Massachusetts, USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, the Sisterhood of Ground Zero, and uh, most recently, the Western Kentucky Tornado Relief Fund. And you can get our app there, too, uh, for your phone. So, Ben, what's in the footlocker for next week? Well, we have uh, coming up next week, July 24th, uh, we'll welcome back the experiencer and UFO great Matt Moniz to talk about surviving alien abduction. And welcome back, I hope. Okay. Uh, we leave you today with a thought from the, uh, that old sweetheart, the 13th century philosopher and theologian Rumi. Silence is the language of God. All else is poor translation. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on 
Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.